I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore podcast. And this is Digital Folklore Unplugged. Unplugged episodes are where we ditch all the fancy production and story elements to bring you the raw or only slightly edited interviews with our folklore experts. On today's episode, my co-host Mason and I got to speak with Dr. Ian Brody. My name is Ian Brody. My day job is I'm a professor of folklore at Cape Breton University, and I am actually currently the president of the International Society for Contemporary Legend Research, and weirdly, also of the Folklore Studies Association of Canada, Association Canadienne d'Ethnologie et de Folklore. In this interview, Ian guides us through the fascinating world of humor, absurdism, dad jokes, and much more. We touch on several aspects of how humor is used to deal with our current society, the political climate that we're in, the economic climate that we're in, world tensions, and so much more. In so many ways, we see that humor is so tied in to what it is to be human. Oh, and we did get into a few spicy areas that we had to cut out of the episode to keep this family friendly. But if you want to hear those, 
head over to Patreon and you can find that there. Okay, let's get unplugged. So you recently came out with, it was recently, right? That you came out with a vulgar art, the book that you wrote? It's not as recent as my most recent book should be. It's been 2014 was when it, when it was published. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I need to write another book sometime soon. But uh, yeah, th- that's sort of the, uh, the thing I'm probably best known for is my stuff on stand-up. And vulgar art is the opening salvo for that. Just on the book side, though, are you in the middle of doing a casebook for Iskler as well? or uh, Myself and my colleague uh, Alexandra Arkipova are doing the uh, casebook on the relationship between legend and politics. Uh, I'm working also with Greg Kelly and Eric Eliason on a book on the relationship between legend and joke, because we've often talked about those as very uh, overlapping genres, and I think it's sort of a conceit of folklore studies that they are, but no one has ever sort of taken that as the uh, as the theme of, of a particular volume and as a sort of a thread of inquiry to, to untangle. And I'm also still trying to plug away on the book on the depiction of belief in the supernatural on children's television, a.k.a. the Scooby-Doo book, which... Mark Norman and I might have some uh, interesting exchanges on sometime in the future. I, I was going to say. We need a cage match on Scooby-Doo. Yeah. yeah. We'll, I'll sound design it, and we'll just get you two in a, in a room. <laughs> um, so there's the common thread, obviously, of humor through some of this. Is humor something that you've focused on in studying folklore, or is that just a coincidence? It's not a coincidence per se, but I, I, uh, oddly enough, I don't know if I necessarily call myself a humor scholar. Like, I'm not particularly immersed in the slightly arcane world of humor theory and joke theory and so on. Uh, I do like humor as, as a topic and in, in general, A, because of, you know, because it, it's a natural avenue if you're going to be talking about stand-up comedy to be talking about it as a humorous form. And some of this work that I do locally as well is about the history of small market popular culture in Cape Breton, particularly humor. So basically the history of recorded humor in Cape Breton and how it relates to sort of local aesthetics and local senses of humor, but just on that slightly larger scale beyond face-to-face groups. So yeah, I mean, that, that is the natural thread. Every now and then I'm asked to talk about conspiracy theory. It's like, I, I can do that reasonably well. But it doesn't necessarily immediately coincide with humor stuff. Right on. Well, actually, then, uh, uh, let's just dive in right from that point. What is the value? Like, what can we learn from studying humor? Like, what kind of insight can we get from the things we find funny? Or like you said, the local sensibilities of humor. Like, what sort of observations can we draw from studying that? Because humor is inherently a lighthearted thing, right? So to think of looking at it academically it might be a bit funny to someone who's not in the folklore sphere. Yeah, but I mean, humor is something that it takes place within that play frame. So, I mean, you can sort of imagine that most of the time we sort of, in a way, we not necessarily uh, by choice, but we sort of have to conduct ourselves in the indicative mood. We have to have meaning. We have to sort of state our purposes and our uh, worldview clearly. We don't necessarily like delving in ambiguity. And uh, we need to be direct with each other. But then at other times, we are more relaxed. We are gregarious and garrulous with each other, at which point we can do things like fundamentally play. We can just take on this, this new set of things. And verbal play is, is one of the things we do. The anecdotes that aren't necessarily true, per se, that they are as much stories, they are as much shaped experience, even if they're purporting to be true. And then things that are clearly, definitely 
the, the question of true or false is not the issue. So things like a joke, something that's marked that way. But I mean, one of the things we can think about is what we find funny are, uh, well, first of all, that sort of pool of common references, the subject matter. Sometimes we find it funny, and we like on, on the, the very small scale issue, we find it funny because we know that we have this opinion about this other group down the, the road. So whatever town you're in, the next town over are idiots, right? Or unclean or promiscuous or whatever. The worst drivers. The worst drivers in the world or lazy or dirty or, or, or whatever. And so we can make jokes on that. And then the analyst can come by and say, okay, well, these are about some sort of attitudes that are in place. And again, the question is not necessarily that we truly believe that these people are lazy or the worst drivers or promiscuous or whatever, but the issue of laziness and promiscuity and dirt and the lack of thrift and all those sorts of things are certainly concerns that we might have generally. The content of the joke is now the people down the road. But now we can sort of, you can use it to analyze values. But one of the things that I cannot stress enough is that when we talk about why study humor, we are almost immediately impelled to give humor its most serious spin. That that the, the study of humor, or even the function of humor to begin with, even before its study, is to sublimate tension, is a sort of stress release, a superiority theory, or so on. And we almost forget that humor is fun, that a joke is delightful and aesthetically pleasing. And so... Well, I can still have that conversation about the importance of humor in terms of what it might mean. The very fact that if I tell a joke and you laugh, we are experiencing something that is first and foremost an aesthetic reaction to it and that we are both delighting in it and we are exchanging that delight. And that is something that we should at least pause and think about and and accept that that is often what the folk themselves most appreciate about a joke. And often that's what the folk themselves will stop in terms of what they need in terms of justifying why a joke exists. It is funny. It's a good laugh. End of story. That's an area that I'm trying to sort of explore a little bit more in terms of folklore in general, and that we have this tendency of wishing to talk about deeper meaning, and it's critical and important that we do, but we should also pause and think about that these are affective, embodied, delightful, potentially joyous, and potentially traumatic as well, but moving uh, things. That that artistic communication in small groups talks about art, not incidentally, and we should momentarily, momentarily, poco poco, sit there for a second and come up with a vocabulary that talks about these things better without having to justify them only on the levels of deeper profundity and deeper meaning. Because that's the bonding moment, right? That's the thing that draws you to connect with a person or, and bring them into your folk group is that shared understanding, that laugh, that moment. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if the basis, the basic premise of folklore is that we exist in groups, but those groups are sort of brought together through its artistic performances, we need to take the idea that those artistic performances are found to be artistic seriously. Oh, yeah. That's a good way of phrasing that. I'm glad this is being recorded. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you the transcript. Put that really yeah. well. You kind of touched on it, but one of the questions I, I had prepared, and maybe we'll just go a little bit more on it, was like, what is the role of, of truth in humor in terms of like the things that we joke about? Because, you know, often the subjects of our jokes, like you were saying before, are pointing towards real fears or anxieties or, or issues going on. Is that sort of broadly the role of truth in humor, that it's 
whatever anxieties we have at the time or a response to things or? Well, I think there's a sort of aspect of truth in as much as humor needs to have a certain form of relevance to it, because it, it needs to sort of at least advert to the presence of the possibility of belief. In the same way that legend sort of is balanced on that issue of credibility, in that it's not so much that I believe this to be true. I mean, or when I'm telling it, it's not so much that that uh, I, I know it's to be true, but I do know that other people are doubting it. I do know that this this very possibility might at least contravene common acceptance. So when we tell a legend, I might say, oh yeah, that's not true, but I understand why people might believe it. And in the same way that like, oh no, it's absolutely true and they don't want you to know this sort of thing. That's, you know, that's Linda Daig's issue of the dialectics of legend and that doubt is always one of those things. And I think joke works the same way. Uh, and if you think about jokes that are, you know, based on prejudice, whether racial or sexual or transphobic or whatever, I mean, one of the reasons that they quote unquote work is that we know racism and sexism and transphobic attitudes to be in place. Maybe we believe them to be true, but know that they are dangerous positions. And maybe we, um, or maybe we don't believe them, but know them to be dangerous positions. And then jokes just become this sort of entry point into discussing those as a potential theme. And is it perhaps chosen? I mean, I would say, is it perhaps? But I feel like perhaps it is chosen to distance the joke teller from potential repercussions of sharing those types of beliefs, specifically in terms of like dangerous or. or, or harmful jokes yeah because uh, there's that that internet there's that internet maxim that i can't remember that had come up on the show before about hose law yes I, I, okay at the american folklore society meeting just a couple of weeks ago i gave a paper on this because it's, it's part of my contribution to this joke and legend volume and it's about pose law and pose law is the idea that there's no statement so outrageous that uh can't be made that if you don't indicate with an emoji someone will take you seriously and and that started off on a, on a board about creationists and creationism. But I'm doing some stuff recently on wrapping my head around uh, like um, this new TikTok thing about um, they call them dad joke competitions, but they're really not dad jokes. Uh, they they where the you know, two people are sitting down and they're trying to not to make the other person laugh, and they are horrendous jokes. I mean, there are all sorts of of terrible stuff in it, but because they are so explicitly marked as joke because they're so explicitly, I am doing this only for the purpose of, of sending you up. You can then say those outrageous things. I would gladly accept the idea that they do not hold this notion in their hearts. If that is the, the way that they choose to operate in the world, choose to present themselves, I'm willing to entertain that. But it's still, there's an argument that is nevertheless perpetuating that because once, it, when, once the, the words escape, they're no longer entirely under your own control. So it's a, it's a gray area. Well, you see, you see a version of that, maybe a, a more lighthearted, well-intentioned version of that on Saturday Night Live right now in the the weekend update where you have Colin Jost and uh, yeah, the uh, switching, uh, yeah, the switching where they'll write jokes for each other and they'll include lots of stereotypes and things that somebody should not say in the position that they're in, but because the other person wrote it, there's a permissive nature of that. And the audience lets them get away with it because they are uncomfortable saying it at the same time. Exactly. And then the the other one would be uh, that feature on Seth Meyers where they have the jokes that Seth can't tell. And so he gives the setup, but then either the, the woman of color or the, or the, uh, the, uh, the lesbian is able yes. to give that uh, the punchline, but he isn't. 
and again, that's sort of because who owns the right to speak is one of those things that that's present in all evaluations of all speech acts, but is ever so more when you're talking about popular culture and ever so more when you're talking about um, certainly on these sort of dangerous topics or dangerous areas, I should say. You know, do, does that get to some of the absurdist nature, though, because you're giving somebody the permission to say it out loud? but you're also not necessarily condoning it. You're, you're kind of saying that because you're saying it out loud right now, you're, you're uttering something that people may commonly believe, but is not necessarily true. And we're going to expose the absurdity of that by putting you in this situation. Is that part of it or, or not? Hmm. Are you talking about the sort of level of Absurd. So, I mean, I guess my question is, how are you defining absurdist humor here? What What, what is the absurdism here? Because, I mean, ab- absurdism to me always sort of thinks stuff that just doesn't follow and it's almost nonsensical. Well, and I'm, I was probably using the word incorrectly for that, but I'm trying to think of the goodwill nature of putting people in situations where they are uttering stereotypes and misconceptions and things mm-hmm. that okay. ought yeah. not to be uttered in public. But I'm wondering if the purpose of of putting people like Colin or other or Seth or somebody in the position of of putting that on their show is specifically to say this proposition or this stereotype is fundamentally absurd, and we're we're going to all laugh about it right now because we know that people are talking. We're, we know that people are making statements like this, but we're going to put it in a different light. Yeah, I, I think. I, I think that is that that's probably the right interpretation once you get to that issue of the deeper meaning of the joke. Yeah. But then there's the the immediate context of the joke is deliberately and and that joke switching is I think deliberately the amusement of discombobulating the performer. You're you're basically in this issue of I mean, fundamentally, it's a practical joke. If we want to use like Moira Marsh's definition of the practical joke, uh, people are involved in a, or two teams are involved in a play frame, only one of them doesn't realize that they are in a play frame. And so this situation is, is I mean, most joke tellers know where the joke is going, and that is the nature of it. Um because they are sort of completing a thought, as it were. They are the ones who are aware of the uh, appropriate incongruity that they are about to release through the certain juxtaposition of words, blah, 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 blah. But watching them figure it out as they go along, and I think so much of it is about watching them do it, it, it is part of that nature. So you're in a context where jokes are being read, and I think that's clear. They're uh, a clean slate. They, they're coming to them fresh. They understand that we're dealing with a joke. They understand the nature of the genre that, that this joke is going to operate in, particularly in things like the um, the genre of the fake news item that is endemic to Sinai Live. So, it's, I mean, it's a structured kind of text. Um, and yet they and the audience are understanding it at the same time. Most jokes are, I don't think it's about power per se, but it is it is about the, uh, in as much as jokes are about release and surprise, not typically both parties are not being surprised. Yeah, there's usually an asymmetry to that. There's an, there's an asymmetry. And the, and the idea that there's like everyone is realizing what's going on at the same time and doing that interpretive act, I think that's what sort of makes it twist. And that, of course, might be the absurdist aspect in that uh, we are just witnessing a spectacle where no one knows what's happening. 
and and the 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 power is symmetrical, but no one has an advantage at all. It, everyone's disadvantaged. That's a, that's the power of improv comedy. Is everybody's discovering at the same time? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, I did I did improv in the past, and then that is what sort of you know figuring it out. Now, of course, they understand conventions and they understand patterns, and the the team will have understood it's both the, the larger history of their improv, improv tradition and hopefully dynamics that they might have between each other, which is not about knowing what this person is going to say so much as knowing how this person thinks. But uh, but still, yeah, that level of uncovery is, and, and discovery is, I think, kind of key to it. But both are in place. One is the performance of uncertainty that we are witnessing. And then what brings about that and what brings about that discomfort, what brings about that issue of forcing someone into a situation that they don't want to be, they typically would not allow themselves to be in, even within the license that a joke frame allows. Because, you know, their own jokes are skirting the issue. But again, Colin won't say certain things and Che won't say certain things. This joke is, there's no doubt about it, this joke is exceptionally racist, but we all know it's a joke. Okay. What do we do about it? And that's sort of the, that's sort of the fun. So that might be like the the um, the deeper meaning of the absurdism. Yeah, but we all know it's a joke, and it wasn't even written by this person that is surprised by having to say it out loud now. Exactly. But they're saying the quiet part of some societal prejudices out loud as well, which is what brings the power to it even more. I think. Well, and, and that can be dangerous because that license can be exploited. Obviously, mm. you know, as we, as we talked a little bit about. Yeah, and that, that sort of blanket permission that some comedians assume, and especially in that, again, that talking about that um, earnestness that people will will impute upon joking in general and stand-up comedians specifically. Another one of my bugaboos is how we've typically sort of had to describe the stand-up as social critic, as anthropologist, as you know, cultural critic or whatever. As if the idea of being entertaining is insufficient. But once you establish that they have a deeper purpose and that they use humor at that, then they're sort of given carte blanche license to say anything because it is about truth telling and exposure, but also simultaneously it's about performance and play. And so you have people hiding behind the character of the stand up to justify whatever now that that's a problem i think that and that's and that's that's different and sort of beyond the scope of what we're talking about today but oh yeah totally. but yeah why don't we go why don't we pivot into the meat of talking about absurdist humor specifically um so starting with a clear definition is probably a good idea as i understand it not as a as a humor scholar is that uh sort of what you, what you had said earlier that things that don't seem to logically follow or the death of meaning or meaninglessness as humor and sort of forging a meaning out of that is there a better or more concise way that you could frame absurdism no i think i i think that works the idea that the that's such an obscure connection between the premise and the punchline as it were i mean most of the thing again my humor theory is as much as i delve into it i'm very much enamored of elliot oring's idea of that a joke is based that humor is basically the apprehension of an appropriate incongruity the idea that you know the joke basically sets you off in one direction the punchline provides a second answer which makes sense as long as one grasps that there's sort of a category 
slip. Again, sort of, and I, I like to think of it as in terms of moving from the indicative to the subjunctive somehow. So that, you know, when is a jar, I mean, his classic example that what he goes back to time and time again is when is a door not a door, you know, when it's a jar. It's like, okay, well, what do you need to understand to, to grasp that joke? And it's about, you know, the homophonic qualities of a jar and a jar. So with that, apologies for the killing the frog situation. But he, he, he has killed that frog many, many times over his 40 years. But, you know, there's, you, you see the mechanism and say, like, oh, okay. And, you, and really, you appreciate the mechanism. I mean, there, there's a certain amount of the aesthetics of joke is sort of grasping the, the leap that one has to take. And therefore, the leap that one had to have taken in its construction uh, in order to achieve that momentary glitch. That is the uh, that is that sort of release. The absurdist joke is is where the connection between those two is so obscure. It's not homophonic. It's you know it's not a jar jar. It's not a pun. It's not necessarily building on some blatant but implied uh, prejudice about the group in in context, like like a dumb blonde joke might function as. It's just weird. I guess the question. I guess the thing is that you're not really. Uh, immediately grasping the mechanism and finding delight in that in the the frisson of the gap between the expected and 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 the consequence and therefore appreciating the wit of the joke's construction you're it's more a matter of puzzlement uh but the puzzlement as it's kind of the point i think the, and that's where you get that absurdism the the notion that the joke does not unfold in any way that you are necessarily expecting it to unfold which is really becomes a kind of meta commentary on the nature of jokes themselves. Yeah, that's so. what I was going to ask because if you obfuscate both the subject and the mechanism of the joke as the point of that style of humor, what is it joking about? What does it point to? Because like Dadaism was a response to World War One, right? Was it a response to the war? Or was it a response to like the economic burden and and struggling to live as just a normal citizen in capitalism after the aftermath of that? Well, I guess the question is, what's the difference between those two? I mean, right. it's like one's an inhale and one's an exhale of that same moment. So that's true. More of our interview with Dr. Ian Brody after this. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much, but I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. And long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. Is there something that absurdism usually points to? Is it usually stress, strain, like seeing, feeling meaninglessness, and that's why we joke about it? Is, it? is there like a nihilism in in that in some way of like this, you know, understanding is futile, and so I'm just going to throw random things together? Um, probably. I mean, there's, it's, it's pushing back against some semblance of orderliness, as it were. Yeah. Something like exploitation of the rule of three type of type yeah. of thing is I can build two data points gives you a, an assumptive connection. But then if I break the assumption on three um, with something that's totally unrelated, then you just you're only left with futility of trying to understand. I think that's a good point. But I think one of the things that strikes me about sort of contemporary Gen Z or millennial humor in the, this absurdist thing is that it's very much a, a, an, an idea of the the Internet where the notion of I mean, I think it might be pointing to the strange idea that the joke makes sense somewhere, but we're sort of in this 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 place where uh, everything is available to us. All time and space and communities are basically, they're not null and void, but the rules have been changed. And so, I mean, the, the, the notion of so the internet is basically the site of infinite choice and infinite possibility allows for the, the, the notion of, well, we just kind of have to question all the genres that they've been presented to us before and and even the content therein because again someone the idea that someone has to find that joke in infinite universes you know with an infinite number of monkeys one of them's going to come up with a joke that another infinite monkey is going to find hilarious and is it kind of funny in itself that no one gets it like there's a humor derived from the fact that it, it is just so weird no one gets yeah. it and so i think it's funny and now i'm in the in group because I think it's funny, and everyone else just says this is a bee emoji that is highly compressed. Exactly. On the uh, online, we come across things that only make sense in the context in which they uh, arose, but we're exposed to them because those borders have been erased. And so it's like this: what, what's what's what about the idea of jokes that are con contextless? I guess. So is what you're saying kind of like we've we've got this breakdown of the walls of all of these micro folk groups we can peer into and often accidentally stumble into uh, highly coded folk communication we don't understand on the internet just at random. And so yeah. this humor is a meta, a meta layer on top of that kind of observation. Pretty much. I mean, I'm always surprised because I've got like an international crew of people on my Facebook pages. And every now and then there's this wonderful meme that comes up, but it's in like Croatian or something. 
and I see it, and there's lots of har har emojis, you know, responses to it. It's like I have no idea what this is. I know it's funny, or at least I know it's being found funny. Someone thought it sufficient to post. Other people thought it sufficient to react to. Completely meaningless, except it's like angry mafia baby. That's all I really know. So just that notion of just coming across this whole other world, which is not where most of our joke material had been prior to the early 21st century. I mean, you know, obviously Usenets and so on, but for the most part, you know, that kind of material was interpersonal and or or mass mediated, but with the expectation of it being met, you know, for the hardest impact. And this is like, okay, it's an obscure joke from five continents away. It's like, I really want to know what this means. I really, I don't get yeah. it. What, tell me, tell, tell me what it means. Invite me into your understanding, please. But that that makes me really curious about humor that is not uh, designed to be understood. Like like the truly absurdist humor that is designed to just be weird and random and nonsensical that people find funny. Why would we delight in not understanding something? Or is that, or do we delight in not understanding that kind of joke because we don't understand so much that we come across that it's just funny to be like, I don't understand anything. This is funny to me, even though it's nonsensical. Like, or what? do we delight in the shared confusion? Because I see a lot of things on Facebook where people will, will post things that have no resolution and then just try to send people off, you know, like spinning their, their wheels trying to figure out what it means. And so you see the comment section explode. And the person that posted that and the, the people that repost that are just delighting in the confusion of others. Yeah. Resolution is, I think, the exact word in that when we see something like that, we just know that it was an intentional act. That's all we know. Because we don't necessarily, I mean, you know, we we might delight in a panda sneezing or we might delight in sort of a strange juxtaposition of animals that look like they're they're talking. But for the most part, you know, uh, we're talking about human activity, human intentional performances. And it's like, I am also a human. I should be able to know what's going on. What is the missing thing? And when no one gets it, and it's just like, it is It is a nonsensical act. It's just intriguing. It can be infuriating as well. You know, I mean, you have to be comfortable in your own unknowingness to really delight in it. It's like, oh, the world is full of mystery, whether on a sort of a metaphorical level or a cynical level. It's just like, eh. I mean, like a deeply profound mystical, mysterious level or a absurdist, cynical, uh, nihilist levels. Like, ah, thing, nothing makes sense. But for those who demand answers, those are the ones who are frustrated. And then you know that there are people out there who demand answers who are being frustrated by it. And again, that's kind of the delight. And that's now sort of the dialectic of it. It's like, I know that I don't get this, but I'm okay with it. Other people, oh, let me watch them. Uh, in the same way that I was watching Colin Jost squirm, let me watch them just scratching their heads and trying to figure out what's going on. That makes sense, because I was wondering what that point of unifying joy is, because that's the thing about humor, right? Like you said, that human moment of just joy and uh, enjoying yeah. the thing. Yeah. That makes sense. And what's more is that I don't need to necessarily understand something to find delight in it. That sort of absurdist thing, just like, because I can still, I don't have to get it. Or, or at the very least, I don't necessarily need to intuit it. It's similar to like food in that I'm going to be experiencing something, especially if we're talking like a visual gag, but I'm going to be experiencing something through my senses that I'm overwhelmed with experience. I might not know what's going on. Someone can explain the dish and its ingredients. They can give me a science of taste. 
They can give me a history of the symbolic meaning, uh, all sorts of things after the fact. But I can still just like momentarily sit there with the food in my mouth and the, the texture of it against the inside of my cheek and just delight momentarily. So I think if I see like the absurdism of, let's just say like a Pink Floyd album cover or something, you know, it's just like, I don't know what this is meant to be, but isn't it just like cool at the same time? I don't need an answer to it. Something being cool, something being fun that goes back to that issue of just like sitting in it for a second. Yeah. All right. I'm getting off my high horse now. Oh, no, it. that was that was all really good and, 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 and really insightful. I try. I'm curious to <laughs> dig. I'm curious to dig more into the uh, why we might see more of that now, because you mentioned that it, it, it might just be a response to the Internet and the breaking down of all of these walls. Do you think there's any ties to our sort of current economic situation with what seems like only doom and gloom forecasts in terms of economy and the climate? Like we're constantly inundated with, uh, you know, late stage capitalism on top of uh, climate change issues and political division. Do you think any of that has anything to do with the rise of this more absurdist kind of humor, particularly in like the younger generation that might be coming up and it's a sentiment I've heard expressed by a few people, mainly my younger sisters, because uh, I'm too old to be in touch now, uh, which was a, a sad revelation when I turned 29. But that idea that there's nothing left for them. Yeah. Well, I have a layer to put on top of that, though. So all, all of that, plus this um, phrase that's been used to describe humor that may or may not be accurate, but probably is accurate for at least a subtype of humor about pain plus time is is humor how does that fit into this more nihilistic understanding of the universe where we are dealing with late stage you know failures of parts of capitalism social strife um, political division uh a lot of uncertainty and and so on how does all that fit together in your mind where, where does humor come out of that i think I think one of the things to consider when we talk about this these these periods of uncertainty and that there's a population that then more or less inhabits that sense of uncertainty and whether you want to call them nihilists or just sort of depressives is is, is sort of up to you in many ways but the notion that these traditional these myths, these narratives, these traditional understandings of how we uh, of the things that were promised to us are not actually functioning that is a time for absurdism. So I think you might be right that late stage capitalism, you're also right like the 1920s. And actually you're you can sort of one of the hallmarks of the folk revival and the history of of interest in folklore in general is how it often coincides with these moments of political upheaval and ex and sort of grand existential moments. So I mean like the first wave happening at the end of the industrial revolution and the beginnings of sort of the the, the movements of Europe and, and the, the dissolution of the nation states or uh, the uh, the smaller principates in the beginning of nation state and you know, romanticism yeah, as one aspect. You have it at the uh, in the 1920s after World War One, obviously. You have it in China after the failure of the Paris peace talks and the the May Fourth movement. You have it in the 1950s after Hiroshima and the Holocaust and and so on. You have all these instances that happen at the same time. And I'm going to get to your <laughs> the question in a second, but at the same time, as much as you have these sort of groups that are about the uh, are uncertain, you then also have a similar movement towards rigid orthodox certainty. 
So that's where you get your like the I think the intense levels of uh, almost sort of tribal partisanship now, and the sort of the rise of populism of the past five years. So you have these two groups. They're they're both sort of reactions. There's one the the stories we were told were were false. And then the stories we were told were absolutely fundamentally true and people have just lost the faith. And I think that's it. I sort of put it into a context of whenever there's like an economic upheaval, you've got two kinds of dancing that emerges. You've got like line dancing and you've got slam dancing. So in the late 1970s, you had disco and you had punk at the exact same time. In the early 1990s, you had the emergence of country line dancing and you had grunge. Those were the two musics at the time. And I think there's a sort of, there, there's an idea of free form negation that happens in, in things like punk. And there's things like rigid conformity that happens in, in at least the white version of disco that took over in the 70s and, and country line dancing. So I think those are the, those two moments. But ultimately, I mean, the internet is the context in which this once more, failure of what our previous generations have told us would be the future uh, is occurring. You know, just in the same way that the emergence of big band and records occasioned what happened in the 1920s, and then you know, subsequently 1950s, and radio and television were were dominant. Internet is what's happening in 2000 when you know our future is uncertain, or at the very least, we have seen too much to take those narratives at a superficial face value. Uh, and so that might be the context of certain forms of absurdism, uh, because we also have the flip side of that, which is sort of fairly tame stuff. And I think we do have the rise of the dad joke. We're also seeing the rise of, uh, sort of earnestness that we haven't seen in a while. And there's a lot of earnest stuff on the internet. And what's, uh, someone was reminding me there's, um, there's a whole TikTok thread called like black men cavorting. And it's just mi- middle-aged dad bod, African-American gentlemen just frolicking just like sort of happy it's not funny but it is is it's a delight that can actually inspire laughter it's just like look at that guy this is the great is there any, so i think we're seeing a lot of that we're seeing a lot of sincerity online as, as much as we're seeing absurdity we're seeing a lot more people tell them tell them that they uh, tell each other that they love themselves you know that they're you know i love you guys and it's like yeah that's happening at the same time as this sort of nihilism and in, in humor so we don't want to focus on the one without at least seeing in some aspects the the, the flip side of it in the, the individual, not to mention on the, like the larger cultural scale of, of camps, as it were. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Dr. Ian Brody. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. I feel like we're even seeing a blend of those two things, like very earnest people being funny in absurd ways. Like when you brought up earnestness and it it made me think there was um, a little experiment I did where I had made a short clip of a a video and posted it to TikTok and it got very little response and engagement. And I had done a lot of production on it. I had made it look very professional and sharp and it got largely ignored. I switched it to a clip that's largely the same content. I didn't switch it. I posted another clip, largely the same content. But instead of all of this production, it was just the raw face cam of the person who was talking nothing else. And that immediately got orders of magnitude more attention because people are seemingly conditioned away from professional sleek production that seems ingenuine and more inclined towards earnestness, at least on platforms like TikTok, which is taking over like wildfire. Absurdist humor is still really popular, but the delivery also has to be earnest. So like thinking about those as opposing forces is interesting also to see how they converge in terms of what we're engaging with. Yeah. I don't think they're necessarily in opposition to each other. I think they can be sort of, uh, I mean, sometimes there's a dialectic to them, but sometimes they're just sort of complementary to each other. I mean, they're, they're both they're both often present, sometimes not necessarily always in the same act. Sometimes someone is being incredibly nihilistic, and sometimes another time they're being incredibly earnest. Those impulses might be existing within the same people, as it were. And, and, and yeah, certain points where they converge. I think the other thing is that, uh, it, yeah, there is a sort of pushback against the uh, certain pushback against artifice now that we are all so very good at, and, and the technology is at our fingers for all of us to engage in incredibly slick productions. I'm sure you are better trained than I am, but you know. But it, we all can. The accessibility for tools to do things we could never dream of is, is higher than ever. Exactly. And so now we're, now we don't want it. <laughs> I mean, with that, though, I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, Lomore Schiffman's book on internet memes, which is pretty old at this point, Yeah, but talks about one of the things that brings virality is immediate replicability. And a head in a white room um, with no slick production or background is one of those things that people immediately can resonate with and say, if I wanted to do this, I could do this easily rather than slick production and studios and perfectly mm-hmm. framed cameras and somebody reading off a teleprompter. But I mean, basically, you're almost describing the, um, the you know, Dylan goes electric issue in that there's, you know, the aesthetics now are mm. asking, at least at this particular moment that you're talking about, the aesthetics value the stripped down earnest simplicity. I mean, it's still an aesthetic choice. I know this for a fact. There are filters for things to make it look like older technology already. So, I mean, even that can become a sort of a certain form of artifice. Yeah. What what constitutes an authentic performance or you being authentic online and the less and less stripped the video is, the more you're participating in that. Now, it's not that we can't appreciate style and we can't appreciate technology and so on, but not every message benefits from that. Yeah, high high production in itself 
seems to create a sense of distance between the person that's watching and the person that's presenting. There's there's more of an asymmetry there, I think. Whereas you get to low production, you get to more relatability, seemingly uh, some authenticity associated with that. But I think what we have to realize is that people architect for that these days, right? They understand that psychological difference and will play to that. And that'll shift too, right, as time goes on. Especially because the technology is so democratized at this point where you can make anything look slick. It's it's really interesting you say that, Perry, because it just made me think, it made me make a connection I hadn't made in my brain. I don't know what observation to draw from it, but a lot of deep fried memes or sort of absurdist content largely features quality degradation, you know, like a lot of those highly compressed JPEGs. And we're also seeing a call for earnestness in this like low tech, low product, I say low tech, our smartphones are ridiculous, but you know what I mean? Right. Like low production uh, content on top of this rise of purposely bad stuff. You see that with memes. You also see it with intentional disinformation of, um, let me put something from the CDC, purportedly, quote unquote, from the CDC on a printed out piece of paper and take a picture of that with my phone. And all of a sudden somebody sees that online and it looks more legit in their mind versus if they put out a slick, uh, you know, produced version of that same thing. Um, So I think, disinformation agents fundamentally understand that we process those things differently. That's also, yeah, that's really interesting. In our last few minutes, unless you have any add-on questions, Perry, I would just ask you, Ian, like, what are you excited about lately? Like, what's got your, what gets your brain turning these days? Like, what are you, what are you thinking about? Well, after my talk in AFS, I, I gave two, and one was about the, um, one was actually about this notion of, of needing to, as a discipline, pause for a moment at the moment of at the, that instance of performance and sort of think about joy as a fundamental capacity uh, and the, the rationale that many many of the people that we study that's why they do it and it isn't for for deeper meaning but we just have a terrible vocabulary for discussing joy and it makes us sound weird so we don't talk about it and it's like that's not an actual solution uh, so is that and then I was given that talk about Poe's law and that prompted me to start thinking about the dad joke. Uh, again, the, not the dad joke competitions, although that's going to be part of it as well, but sort of its emergence in the past 10 years as, uh, at the very least, as a name for a thing. And, you know, what are the appeals of these jokes? And what is, how are we defining dadness? What does the adjectival form dad mean? So, like, the, the, the other day I'm Googling dad bod. And so, like, oh, great, my algorithm is screwed from this point on but all right you already just got one of the follow-up questions i was going to ask but oh okay <laughs> and if you if you can academically describe the characteristics of dadness that you will answer a question of a generation because <laughs> oh i think so it's a nobel prize in that yeah I, and i'm still sort of unpacking it but i think there's dadness is a reaffirmation of a certain position of patriarch, but that is not necessarily conditioned by fear or inherent power structures and is more conditioned by mutual affection. And so like, these aren't father jokes, these are dad jokes and the dadness is there. And I, and I, th- I, I've been sort of you know, working out how I'm expressing it and I got it all typed out nicely. Yeah. It's kind of like dad, dad bod is not alpha male bod. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. At least in, to me, I really enjoy how it seems to be a reclamation of masculinity in a more soft and emotional sense, as opposed to the traditional masculinity of like, never cry, don't share your emotions, yada, yada. It's, it's, it's more affectionate. It's more open. It's more 
vulnerable. It's a reclaiming of vulnerability in masculinity without reducing the masculinity of it. Yeah. Is that the dad bod or the dad joke? Dadness in general. Dadness in general, um, yeah. Pedro Pascal is daddy now on the internet. Yeah. You know, like all of, you know, someone is daddy. Daddy is a thing. Not even, not getting into the more lewd areas of the internet, obviously, but generally a dad vibe is like this soft masculinity that I'm, I think bodes well for attitudes around masculinity in the future. Yeah, there's like an affinity to that word. Do you know, um, the, the way I've been sort of phrasing it is, uh, do you know Gregory Bateson's expression about play? No. no. Uh, he was using it, the, the description of um, puppies fighting. And so uh, he described it as the nip that denotes the bite, but does not denote what the bite denotes. So basically, mm. you know, the, the, the act that represents actual combat, but does not actually denote what actual combat denotes. Genuine aggression, genuine displays of power. And so, like, the dad joke for me, um, and, you know, I think the dad bod might sort of throw be, be thrown in this as well, it is very much in keeping. So, the, I mean, what the, what the dad is doing in the dad joke is he is reaffirming his position of power and imposing a meaning on a scene, which is why it sort of relates to the Schrodinger's douchebag. He's reframing something. He's dragging everybody into a joke occasion, irrespective of whether they <laughs> wish to be in that joke occasion. Right. And so it is a performance of patriarchal power without actually denoting all the things that patriarchal power denotes in terms of inherent misogyny, massive amounts of privilege, the, the, the landscape of violence and so on. That's the, the idea uh, that I'm working on. The, I'm, I am so ready to read the stuff you write about this. Cause that just, that I, that I love that's, that. That's fairly profound. Yeah. All right. That's really, I'm chewing on that. It's nice to know. Cause I'm, I haven't shared it with too many people. So it's like, okay, it's making sense. Yeah. That is awesome. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to Ian Brody for spending time with us. Check out our show notes for links to find out more about Ian, as well as his books, his YouTube channel, and more. For those of you who haven't done so yet, consider joining our Patreon. You'll get access to interviews like this, as well as all the bits that we had to leave out in order to make the publicly available feed as family-friendly as possible. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for a future episode, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. And if you're interested in sponsoring us, hit us up. We would love to talk to you. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.